Hello, and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and I'm joined today by Corey Shockey, research fellow at the Hoover Institution, member of Hoover's Military History Working Group, and the author of one of the pieces in the newest issue of Strategica, which focuses on Israel and a nuclear Iran. Corey, welcome back to the podcast. It's a pleasure. Now, let me begin where your piece begins with the opening of your essay at Strategica. I'm quoting you here. The Iran nuclear deal makes an Israeli strike less likely in the near term and more likely in the medium term unless U.S. policy changes to restore the credibility of our own military options and suppresses the non-nuclear threats Iran is fomenting. There are three, four different questions embedded in there, so I'm going to break that up. Why don't don't we start with this? It makes a strike – Less likely in the near term. There are critics of the president who are loath to give him credit on any facet of this agreement. On a shorter time horizon, though, it sounds like you're willing to concede that this arrangement is at least better than the old status quo was. Is that right? Yes, I think that's right, but only because the status quo was deeply, um, deeply flawed by the president. Right, so the the policy itself, which was either Iran enters into a multilateral agreement, limiting and eventually eliminating its nuclear weapons program, or we attack the elements of that program with military strikes. And the policy is perfectly sensible. The reason it was unsustainable was that nobody believed that President Obama would actually carry it out. And so that's what made an Israeli strike so likely in the near term, our lack of credibility to carry out our own policy. So based on what we've seen in the year or so since this deal has been in effect, how would you compare the text of the agreement, the agreement as promised, with how it's actually played out? Yeah, um, a disappointment, to be honest. The administration has been so interested in sustaining the deal that they are turning a blind eye to several problematic elements of the implementation. One is that the deal permits the Iranians themselves to inspect the Parchin nuclear plant um, instead of having the International Agency for International Atomic Energy Agency um, do the inspections. So, so that's unsatisfactory, and they agreed to that as part of the implementation. The second thing is that there were 12 areas that the IAEA identified that the Iranians were supposed to provide uh, intelligence information so that we could establish a baseline of what they call prior military activities. Um, and the Iranians only satisfied two of those 12 areas identified by the IAEA, and yet the United States and the other signatories agreed to move ahead with the deal. The IAEA concluded that it was impossible to verify the agreement without this information. So we have no baseline on which to judge what Iran is doing now. I think both of those things are pretty big problems with the implementation of the agreement, and the Obama administration isn't even acknowledging them. 
there were different and sometimes mutually exclusive rationales amongst the supporters of the Iran deal, one of which sort of conceded that the brass tax of the agreement may have been lacking in some fundamental way, but said you know, the important thing is getting our foot in the door and that this can begin bringing Iran into the community of nations, acculturating them to sort of the norms of good global citizenship, that it's the beginning of a, a long incremental change in the kind of temperament of the regime, and some of the people who made that argument might argue that we're still too early in the process to judge that proposition. But what do you make of that case based on what we've seen so far? I agree with that case, but that's an argument for getting a deal. That's not an argument for getting this deal. Mm. Um, so uh, I think that with a deal in place. We ought to move very fast to open the spigots of investment and other economic opportunity because if the gates are only opened narrowly, the beneficiaries will be the regime and the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, whereas if the gates are opened widely, there's a much higher probability that average Iranians will get opportunities. Um, so, so there is an argument for go and go fast and open the spigots up. Um, it's, it's a parallel to the argument that's been made about Cuba, for example, that if you are going to open, don't open a little, open a lot, because that way you don't allow the people in a predatory government to be the beneficiaries of it. And I think that's right. You say in your piece that – I'm quoting you again here – the principal mistake of the Obama administration's Iran deal was dealing only with the threat posed by a nuclear-armed Iran. Explain what you mean by that. Yeah, so um, I cribbed this piece of strategic insight off of Jim Mattis. He very often talks about how uh, there are five threats that Iran poses. Their nuclear weapons program, their terror – Direct government terrorism by Iran, trying to kill the Saudi ambassador in Washington, D.C. Um, so they're directly involved. They're also indirectly involved in terrorist activities, arming Hamas and Hezbollah. The third threat is destabilizing regional governments. Lebanon's experienced this. Bahrain has experienced this. Yemen is experiencing this. Um, so that's the third threat. The fourth threat is the threat to peaceful commercial shipping in the Straits of Hormuz, uh, which the Iranians routinely threaten to close and threaten to mine. And then the fifth threat that they pose is to their own people, human rights violations and depredations by this government. So I think Jim Mattis's description of the five threats is exactly right. And President Obama has focused the entirety of his policy on only one of those. And what we have seen as a result is a ramping up by Iran in all of those other areas. Corey, one of the points on which the debate around Iran always seems to hinge is the nature of the regime itself. There are people on one side who say that because there's a kind of religious fundamentalism animating the mullahs that we can't analyze their behaviors through a sort of conventional cold western cost-benefit analysis. And then there's an opposing argument that says, look, the religious rhetoric is basically window dressing. It's for the masses. These are very cool customers and they're not going to do anything that risks serious reprisal. Um, do we have compelling evidence on either side of that debate? I am not an Iranian expert. I don't read the 
language. I haven't lived in the country. So I'm not sure I'm competent to answer that question. My general rule, though, is that when dangerous governments say things, we ought to take them at their word uh, because too often the elegant analyses of what's really going on actually serve to um, excuse threatening behavior and and not take advantage of it. An Iranian government that is directly engaged in war crimes in Syria in support of this Assad government that is advancing very quickly and very aggressively a ballistic missile um, programs in order to threaten their neighbors and that writes death to Israel on the sides of those missiles that actively works to overthrow the governments of Yemen, of Bahrain, of Lebanon. Uh, um, All of those things are practical facts we have to deal with no matter what the nature of the Iranian government is. So whether or not their religion is genuine, their behavior is terrible and we need to rein it in. What inevitably happens in, in cases like these is that some pundits will start reverse engineering recent history until they can get the present moment to sort of look inevitable. So uh, <laughs> let, 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 let me have you grapple with one of those arguments that you hear That's a lot. That's a great description. <laughs> there, there, is a, there is a school of thought out there that one of America's cardinal sins vis-a-vis Iran – was actually the Iraq War because knocking out Saddam Hussein's regime removed the biggest regional check that we had on Iran's power. Do you have any sympathy for that argument? I do have a little bit of sympathy for that argument, yeah, that I think we should have done more across the last two administrations to rein in Iran's bad behavior in the region, to publicize it, to side with governments that felt themselves under threat from the Iranians and to constrain Iran's uh, conventional military options like their ballistic missile program and their harassment of shipping in the Straits of Hormuz to to cause them to suffer for their support for terrorism and war crimes. I mean, my measure of the success of Iran policy by the United States government will be when Qusem Soleimani, the head of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, cannot sleep safely outside of Iran's territory. That's when we will have actually constrained Iranian behavior, and we're nowhere near to doing that. So to that point, this is the last question I'll put to you. As you and I speak today, we are a little over three months away from the inauguration of a new president. And whether it's Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, that president, like everyone before, is not going to start with a blank slate. You know, they'll start out constrained by the actions of the previous administrations, in this case by what's come from the Iran deal. Even if a Donald Trump, for instance, wanted to walk away from it, there are certain consequences of the deal that President Obama struck that can't really be undone. So in the second best world with those constraints, if you're on the National Security Council, what are you telling the next president about how to think through the relationship with Iran? So I agree with the way that you framed it. Because this is a multilateral agreement and Iran has been under American sanctions since 1979, the really important uh, garroting of the Iranian economy has been European and Asian countries agreeing to sanctions in addition to the American sanctions. The Bush administration put some in place. The Obama administration put others in place. 
Um, and, and the removal of the Iran agreement by the United States will not in and of itself put those sanctions back in place. The Chinese aren't going to do it. The Russians aren't going to do it. The Europeans aren't going to do it. So what I would tell the president is that uh, we need to move against those other four areas of Iran's bad behavior and uh, tighten in their range of activity. And I bet we actually could get international support for that. Maybe not in the UN Security Council with the Russians and Chinese, given the nature, especially of the Russian-American relationship these days. But we and the Europeans and our allies in the Middle East can do an awful lot working in concert to make Iran's conventional military operations, their terrorism, uh, and their predations against the Iranian people be much more costly for the government. And we can and should work actively on all of those things. All right. My guest has been Corey Shockey. To read her work and that of other members of Hoover's Military History Working Group, be sure to visit Strategica online at hoover.org slash strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. Corey, thanks for being with us. It's a pleasure. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Strategica, and I'm Victor Davis Hanson. 